thank you for joining me for another episode. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and this is Nature Revisited. This podcast will be airing on November 3rd, the day of our national election. As we are all immersed in this time of great debate as to who will be president, I thought it appropriate to do an episode that looked back to our first president, George Washington. Most of us think of George Washington as the Revolutionary War general and president. But few of us know the man who loved nature, who loved farming, and who created the beautiful gardens at Mount Vernon. And who once said, I'd rather be on my farm than emperor of the world. So I visited Mount Vernon and sat down with Dean Norton, the head horticulturalist, and talked about Washington, his love of nature, and the gardens at Mount Vernon. So let's start with the gardens and what makes Mount Vernon so special. They come to see the house and they learn about Washington and they see the garden and they admire it, having never thought they would have seen a landscape, grounds, or gardens like this. The gardens at Mount Vernon are really relevant because they tell a story of the past and, and they tell a story of gardens at a time when they were just now becoming gardens to enjoy because it wasn't that far off when the gardens were purely for survival. All gardens early on were nothing but vegetable gardens. They, I mean, if, if you didn't have that, you, you wouldn't have good health. You wouldn't be able to survive. So it wasn't until the mid 18th century, maybe a little before, but you start actually seeing flowers grown for, for beauty and not necessarily for use. So when you get to this point, we're talking 1799, their gardens actually just for beauty. Uh, you, you have both, but, but they were for use and for beauty. And this garden that we're in now was so special. You see, the landscape he was trying to create was something in his mind beautiful enough and special enough that it would reflect the man that he had become. And so when people came, he needed a pleasure garden because he knew that really fine gardens had pleasure gardens, which were gardens to grow plants not for their use, but for their beauty. Wherever Washington was, he was never far from thoughts of home and his cultivated fields or gardens. He was always thinking of home. And, and not only George Washington, but even Martha, a lot of times well, Martha kind of ruled the vegetable garden. And, and during his lengthy absences during the war and the presidency, she was usually with him. Every letter written back to the land manager usually had something about his gardens, the landscape, some kind of note from Martha to the gardener. And he would always say, Mrs. Washington desires uh, that you collect seed, that you harvest this, that you prepare that, that you plant this. One time he wrote that I expect an abundance of everything, that I, I want uh, everything to be looking good at its best because I'm expecting the ministers of France, Portugal, and Great Britain to come in succession along with many other strangers. And many other strangers came. Oh my gosh, I mean, in one year he welcomed over 700 guests. It can change someone's life, what they see here and, and what they see happening here. It has a real story to tell. I mean, not just history. All the gardens here are subtle. I think 
what you see in, in this 18th century garden and so many is gardening in its simplest form. I think what's so special about that is that people can see that, you know, they watch these gardening shows and, and at the end, they've spent thousands of dollars on stonework and on fountains and on water features and all this, and you don't have any of this here. This is basic gardening and it can be done by anyone of any degree of skill level. Yeah, you may lose a few things. We lose things all the time. I mean, it's just gardening and you can make it really special. And another thing which really neat about this garden is that the features people all of a sudden pick up on are the simplest things. This trellis behind me, as simple as that is, but it's this really neat garden feature. Trellises for the espaliers, the brick edging, they're just the simplest little elements within the garden that people, because it's not crowded with all this other stuff, you recognize the simplest things in the garden. And, and I think people really appreciate that. I can't help but wonder, where did Washington get his love for nature? Well, I think we really pick up on Washington's love of nature and plants really early on. Um, it's 1748, here's, here's George Washington, a 16 year old, and he's on a surveying trip at the, in the Ohio River Valley. And he, and he writes in my journal of my journey over the mountains uh, that about four miles higher up river, we rode for the most beautiful groves of sugar trees. And for the best part of the day, we admired the beauty of the trees and the richness of the land. So this, this is a young man that is already so awe-inspired by the beauty of this country, by the majesty of the trees, the richness of the land. So he's already primed to live a life that is responsible as far as proper cultivation of the earth and, and sharing that with others, which I think was really, to me, one of the more special parts of Washington's life. And really we learn, I think, more about Washington and who he was through his quotes about agriculture, cultivation of the earth. He was real connected with nature. You know, Washington's earliest landscape was based on uh, formal design, geometric patterns, which is what you'd expect for early American gardens. But Washington had purchased a book written by a gentleman named Batty Langley, who was a leader of a new movement in England, the naturalistic movement. These designers were trying to get the English gentry to abandon what they had adopted from the French, which was just pure formality, and go back to nature. Not have trees touched by the scissor or topiary, not trap water into a canal. They, they wanted to go back to streams and lakes and groves of trees and sweeping lawns because they can grow turf so well. So Washington really bought into that. And so his landscape changed from formal to the naturalistic. And, and on January 12, 1785, Washington writes that I'm, I rode to my mill swamp and other locations looking for the sorts of trees and shrubs I shall want for my new plantation. And so it all changed at that point. And why did he need to go anywhere else? Everything that he needed, dogwood, redbud, fringe trees, pines, hollies, cedars, ash, maple, oak, were right in his forest. I mean, he could just go and dig them and bring them right back. So it really truly was an American garden because everything that was growing was native and it was right close by. But he also had a real interest in exotics. And he mentions that a lot. In 1792, about 209 plants from John Bartram. Actually, those plants he used to develop a whole new garden feature or landscape feature called the ovals, which were planted on the Bowling Green. And he gave us really specific instruction on what to do and how to lay them out. And he would write to people saying, I'm looking for, for plants that are not usually grown in this area. Um, he just had this thirst for, 
for new, for, as he said, exotic. He was interested in just, just everything. But he also knew that the most important part of gardening was still the garden of necessity, which were the, the vegetables, the fruits, vegetables, and berries. And so he didn't dare to vote this space, which is almost an acre in size, to totally flowers. That would have been really wrong. So he, he read the English author dictionaries and writings, and, and they, they shared with him that you can have both. You can combine beauty with necessity, plant your vegetables, cultivate the earth for that, but surround them with a border of flowers. He, he was able to, to grow much more square footage in, in the more necessary parts of gardening. But that border became a, a garden that people could walk in and admire the roses, pinks, lilies. The visitors talk about that the flowers were a beautiful in appearance, exquisite in their perfume, and delightful to the eye. So he did achieve what he was trying to achieve. A border of flowers, almost always behind that would have been a backdrop of espaliered fruit trees, which would have created a wall between the two and a screen so that when people walked in here, they never, walking into the upper garden, ever say anything about vegetables, but they always comment about the beauty of the flowers. Washington's gardens were something that were created for the enjoyment of his guests. Uh, the idea before and after dinner was to stroll the gardens and grounds. But Washington did not take a direct hand in all that. Once he created this, he designed it all, he hired professional gardeners to maintain it. I think he took great joy in the comments that he received from visitors that strolled the gardens. But, but he typically, he was riding around his five farms, his 8,000 acres, checking on them daily. It, it, was a, it was the highlight of someone's stroll around this property to walk in, admire the greenhouse, those tub plants that would have been stored in there in the wintertime so that they wouldn't freeze, stuck around the garden during the growing season, and the beauty of the flowers. And this garden was not meant to run through. This garden was meant to stroll, to enjoy, to admire. And I just think people would have done what we would like for folks to do today, is to spend some time in the garden, to, to watch it come to life before your eyes, with all the activity of the bees and the moths and the, and the butterflies and the hummingbirds, it's, it's like this ballet that's going on, starting with sun coming up to sun going down that so many people just miss unless they just stop and look and admire and enjoy. You have an important role here at Mount Vernon. How did it start? The horticulturist that was here took a liking to me and basically really early on said that you're of the age that when I retire, you might want to take my job. And so I mean, what really convinced me that this is what I wanted to do is when the grounds foreman said, I want you to go get the big green tractor and mow the 12 acre field. And so when I got on that tractor, I'm a kid, you know, I'm 17, 16, I don't know. And I'm on the rear end of this tractor. It, it was a bear to steer and it was loud and the Exhaust was coming to my face. I said, man, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. So uh, I was hooked. And that, that's the thing. That, that, that's what we need to do is get people back to the garden and they will get hooked. Yeah. You got to hook them. Yeah. When someone takes an interest in what we're doing, we, we actually take time with them because we, we think it's important. What's really great is if there's something close by that's edible, it's really fun to maybe take a bud of a daylily and say, try this, it's really good. And they said, come on. And they'll bite it and go, man, oh, this is good, you know? You can, and we, we eat our way through the garden. It's, it's, that's fun. 
that's fun to do. And, it, and then really fun is when you get a seed pod and you go hold out your hand, and you, you take the pod and you just, you rub the pod and all this seed drops in your hands and it, and you go, oh my gosh, you mean a plant comes from that? And when they, when they realize that this plant actually generates the seed for a plant just like it, it it's self-preservation. It's something that a gardener can take and save and, and plant it the next year. And, and that was Washington. He always hated it when he had acquired a plant of some sort and then uh, the gardeners lost it or they stored it incorrectly. He felt once you've got a plant, you should never have to seek that plant again. He was frugal. Our gardeners every day, they do such a great job, but I tell them, I remind them often, before you start your day, before you start digging and working and sweating and getting all dirty, take a moment to admire your garden. Admire what you had done the day before. It, it just rejuvenates you. It, I'm an administrative horticulturist now, but when I get the chance to come and walk through this garden, to, to take a look at the, the house of George Washington, to go into the kitchen garden, I'm ready to go. Yeah, I, I'm set for, uh, for a long time. It's, it's exciting. It's hard work. We as a, as a horticulture team believe that we want to educate people every day. We want to enlighten them about what's here. And so we are more than welcome to answer questions. And if, if we have people taking an interest in what we do, we, we take some time. We share with them what we're doing and why we're doing it. We, and we try to engage them so that they themselves will realize that this is so much more than just this display of history, that this is something, number one, they can do at home, but something on a very smaller scale and still get so much joy from doing that. So if, if someone's interested, we'll, I love to eat our way through the garden. Now in a flower garden, you think that's not real easy to do, but, but you can get a daylily bud, you might find an asturtium flower, um, and, and you say, hey, try this, and people will try and go, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And if you happen to have vegetables, to break a little spear of asparagus. For them, someone to hear the snap when it comes and then bite it, it's like their eyes open up and they think, this, this is truly extraordinary. And, and you've, you've caught them, you've hooked them. And I think just from that little encounter, uh, that's changed their life. And I think it's something that they're going to now try to do themselves. And we, I hear it all the time. Knowing that you were coming today, um, I did my research and you talk about history of place. And the history of place would be features within a garden that in some way are historic, not necessarily 200 years historic, just maybe in your own lifetime historic. But there's also a, a, a saying sense of place. And sense of place is that you can place yourself at the time of wherever you're visiting. Battlefields, people that go to Civil War battlefields or revolutionary battlefields, if they can get in the moment, they have this incredible sense of place. I just got a chill thinking about this. You, you just are there, you feel the emotion, the battle. You start to smell the gunpowder. It's, it's a sense of place. Being here as much as I have, I really have had that. Uh, usually, typically when there's no one around, it's either early in the morning or late in the evening, because in the 18th century, this would have never really been a very quiet place at all. There was a lot happening. Dogs would have been barking, chickens would have been making their sounds, the horses would have been getting ready. In the morning, Washington gets up and goes down and greets his hounds every morning, sees his horses and comes back. So really, silence at Mount Vernon was not at all usual in the 18th century, but today, it does occur. And, and that's when I, 
not only feel connected with Washington, with what was occurring in the 18th century, it's, it's an overwhelming feeling that really it's hard to describe unless you're lucky enough to be on the estate, sitting on the piazza or walking along the Bowling Green, it'll happen to you too. When you come to Mount Vernon to go to an 18th century site, you usually see animals in yoke working, you see people cultivating in the field, you see everyone was connected to the land in some way, they had to be. Washington wrote that our, our wealth and prosperity depends on the cultivation of our earth. It was, it was an agrarian society. We just, we need to get people back out to, to plant a tree, to watch it grow, to plant a garden, to just have an appreciation, walk back in the woods again, take that time, um, breathe the air. I mean, this is what a gorgeous day this is today. I like to teach, I like to talk, I like to do so that anyone will understand what I'm saying. Keep it simple, keep it fun. Um, that's how you make those connections. I, I don't care who comes through this garden, they can be 95 down to six. I can do something that will engage them that they're gonna go away leaving this site feeling like, man, I learned something. And a lot of times they say, I wanna go home and garden. And that's, that's just fantastic. When we get a request for a garden tour nowadays, they always call me and say, we have this group that would like to do a garden tour. Would you like to do it? I get to check it out, see where they're from, see if they're really interested. I said, yeah, we'll do it. Because I want them to have a tour with a horticulture staff, someone with hands-on that can show them and share with them the sorts of things that we talked about today. So it, it is truly all about outreach and, and education and how can we touch these people in a real special way. So, you know, we're doing it each and every day. And when I go out and lecture, and talk about George Washington, the first thing I hear is, I wanna go out and garden. I wanna get back in my garden. So now the garden we're gonna go into is a colonial revival garden. And I don't know if you've heard that term, but nope. it, anything colonial revival is, is certainly based on some historical accuracy, but it's also equally based, if not more on beauty. So what, what you have here is an example of a formal English kitchen garden. The 18th century horticulturists talk about surrounding the quarters of your garden with fruit trees, and they would have been espalier fruit trees. Now these are simple single arm and double arm, but they would have been four or five arm espaliers, really a wall of fruit trees. And a lot of produce was expected to come from here to feed all those that were visiting. Um, let's walk on down to the, the tool room, because looking from up there down on the garden is really beautiful. Hey there. You work here? Yes, ma'am. It's an above ground cistern, so it was a holding tank for water, but it would have been filled by someone carting water in okay. by yoke. The closest well that we know of was over by the family kitchen, which is quite a ways away. And then they would use that to water the garden. And then that would be the dipping well, that's right. Oh, wow. If they didn't have a cistern like that, they'd have what they called a basin, which would just be basically a dugout pond. Okay. Yeah, but water was critical for this garden. I mean, if they didn't have a good source. Yeah, by water, by they had watering cans. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow, lots of work. It's a lot of work, yeah. Strawberry beds coming along beautifully. So Washington gave the, um, the gardener a free hand to do whatever he wanted in a garden as long as he submitted weekly reports. The gardener wasn't always so good at doing that. Washington would remind him, make sure he has paper that he can give me that report. He really looked forward to that. 
The 18th century horticulturists talk about a garden this size, which is about an acre in size, would require one full-time gardener. We follow the same practice today. Each of our larger gardens has one gardener assigned to it, and then we have a floating staff of gardeners that go to whatever garden needs the help with that particular time. And then there were uh, typically two to three slaves assigned to the gardener uh, to help throughout the growing season. And then other staff members, cooks and, and other staff members, when they were idle, they would come out and help in the garden as well. You can see why it's called the lower garden. It goes from the Bowling Green and just continues to slope, slope right on down to the river. It was terraced to give you two level areas to plant. Come on up here, this is beautiful up here. It's just a wonderful view of the garden from up here. It is, it is beautiful. And once again, it's just, you, you can pick up on so many different things. The shape of the wall, I love the way it, it uh, slopes down, the, the pale fence on top of the little wall that surrounds it. Now, on the Bowling Green side, that, that fence is aesthetically pleasing, but on this side, it's practical for the garden and the gardener because they recognize that gardens needed to breathe, that good airflow in a garden helped eliminate uh, diseases and poor plant growth. The, the, all the little different roofs and peaks and, and chimneys, it, it just all adds interest to the garden. The little garden houses that we're in right now, this is an 18th century structure, as well as the one down at the other end. This was a gardener's tool room seat house, and that would have been the uh, outhouse or necessary. The helicopter is very appropriate too. I think the reason that this garden is relevant as well is because a garden tells stories. It's a wonderful way to, to share, to reflect to just sit for a while and relax. And I mean, that's why I think our garden's relevant because it's passing along that passion that Washington had to others. I think this is why gardens are relevant. Get you outside, slow you down, take a minute to breathe and enjoy. Maybe even grow something for your own use for eating. That's really special to grow lettuce or cabbage or whatever it might be. From, from earth to table, you can't get more exciting than that. Uh, but another thing about a garden, which is really great, it's so much fun to share from your garden, uh, especially perennials and other plants. To take a plant and pass it along to someone else, and then they do the same for you. Washington, if, if there was a gift to give to Washington, the greatest thing you could give him was a plant that he wasn't familiar with. I hope you enjoyed my visit with Dean Norton and that someday you get a chance to visit Mount Vernon. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with family, friends, and colleagues. You can subscribe to Nature Revisited on your favorite podcast server. And if you would like to share your thoughts and comments, please visit us at NordenProductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, Productions.com. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, do remember, we are nature.